I'm sure you've heard the expression, a blessing in disguise. It's a good thing that initially looks like a bad thing, but ends up a good thing. You break your arm, but you fall in love with the nurse at the hospital. It was a blessing in disguise. You get laid off, but you end up with a better job with higher pay. You go to the doctor to have him check a minor ailment, and you discover a life-threatening illness that would have been undiagnosed. It was a blessing in disguise. You don't have the grades to get into a particular college, so you're forced into another field that ends up a better fit for you and for your talents. You get busted on a DUI, but it finally forces you to stop drinking. You know, at first, the broken arm, the untimely layoff, the bothersome ailment, the personal rejection, that embarrassing arrest. You thought it was a bad thing. But then, a God thing happened. And it turned in to a good thing. We now call it a blessing in disguise. 19th century author and poet Oscar Wilde once wrote, What seems to us bitter trials are often blessings in disguise. A more contemporary poet, Canadian crooner Brian Adams, he sings this, Are you alone? Are you lonely? Are you crying? Are those teardrops in your eyes? Is it more blues? Is it bad news? Is it a curse or a blessing in disguise? It's the scars that make you stronger. It's the hard times that make you wise. It's the sweet things that only time brings that arrive like a blessing in disguise. This past week, July the 6th was an important anniversary. Not only July the 4th, but July the 6th was an important anniversary. In fact, in the Czech Republic, Tuesday was a national holiday. And to understand why, I need to take you back six centuries to the German city of Constance. The year is 1415. And for eight months now, John Huss, the great Czech reformer, has been occupying a tiny prison cell. Huss, you see, had dared to stand up to the abuses and the wrongs he'd seen in the Roman Catholic Church. And he had been condemned to die for the stand he'd taken. He'd been stuffed in this little cell to await his certain martyrdom. And it was there that John Huss wrote down his prayer. O most holy Christ, draw me, weak as I am, after yourself. For if you don't draw us, we cannot follow you. Strengthen my spirit that it may be willing. Let your grace precede us. For without you we cannot go to cruel death. Give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love. That for your sake I may lay down my life with patience and joy. The next day, July the 6th, was the day of John Huss's burning. He was taken to the execution site, stripped of his clothes, his hands were tied behind his back, and he was chained to a wooden stake around his neck. He was then covered with sticks and straw. Huss was given a final opportunity to recant his faith. And yet this brave believer replied, God is my witness in the truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached. I will die today with gladness. And with that, the torch was lit 
John Huss was burned to the stake for the sake of Jesus Christ and his ashes were thrown into the nearby Rhine River. Now if you're like me, you like God's promises. You love to claim God's promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise I like to claim. God's abiding presence. There's two promises in Philippians. God shall supply all your need. And then the often quoted promise, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whenever I sin, I'm quick to repeat God's promise to the Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christians love to rely on God's promises. But there is one promise that we're not so fond of reciting. Yet it's a God-given promise nonetheless. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 tells us, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Hey, you live a godly life and God promises you at some point you'll be scorned and ridiculed and persecuted. Unlike John Huss, you may not be burned at the stake. And called on to die for Jesus' sake. But the cost of following Jesus is billed to us in different ways. Stop laughing at the dirty jokes and using the foul language. And your buddies will want to know why you're no fun anymore. Stop frequenting the bar and they'll snicker behind your back. Refuse to fudge on the expense reports and you'll get snubbed by your co-workers. Tell your girlfriend or your boyfriend that you've decided to reserve sex for marriage and you'll be misunderstood. Stop cheating on the tests and your friends will get convicted and stop hanging out. Stop lying to clients and your boss might question your loyalty. Stand up for Jesus in the classroom and your heathen professor may just try to humiliate you in front of your peers. Live out your faith at home and your unbelieving spouse may try to make life harder for you. You see, decide to be a serious Christian and you'll stop getting invited to the parties, that's for sure. You'll get ignored and ostracized. You might even lose a client or get fired from a job. Hey, your stand for Jesus may just cost you a friendship. The second century Saint Tertullian By the way, a disciple of the Apostle Peter, whom we've been reading. He was once approached by a man with a soul-searching question. The man asked Tertullian, I have come to Christ, but I don't know what to do. I have a job that I don't think is consistent with what Scripture teaches. What can I do? I must live. Tertullian answered the fellow, Must you? Hey, there is nothing worth denying our Lord Jesus Not even life itself. Just ask John Huss. Here's what we learn from 1 Peter chapter 4. Suffering and persecution for Jesus' sake is a blessing in disguise if we approach it and endure it with the right attitude. See, Peter's readers were starting to feel the heat. They weren't yet dying for their faith, but their suffering was increasing. And Peter wants to arm them with the right attitude. This was John Huss's desire. He prayed for a right attitude toward his suffering. I love his prayer. Give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love, that for your sake I may lay down my life with patience and joy. 
You see, according to God's promise, suffering is a given. It's not if, my friend, but when. Persecution isn't a, oh, how come? It's a how will it happen and how much. Whether God calls on us to suffer in big ways or little ways, we need to be ready. 1 Peter 4 is to believers who are under the gun. Peter teaches them and us. He gives them four truths that can turn persecution into a blessing in disguise. Verse 1 begins, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. When you're attacked by this hostile world we live in, when people come against you, you need to be armed. Peter asks us, arm yourselves. But how do we arm ourselves? As a Christian, do I need to start packing a rod? Learn taekwondo? Do I need to carry a little canister of mace in my back pocket? No, no, and no. A pistol, a punch, a poison. It might help me against a random act of violence. But when it comes to persecution for Jesus' sake, Peter says that we need to arm ourselves with a mindset. Arm yourselves with the same mind, with an attitude. Hey, Jesus suffered for us in the flesh, and he did so for multiple reasons, but one of which was to teach us how to suffer for his sake and to do it well. Peter's instructing us that when we're mocked and maligned for Jesus' sake, when we're discriminated against for righteousness' sake, we need to be locked and loaded with the same attitude our Lord Jesus displayed on the cross. Hey, here's principle number one. Verse one tells us, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Why is suffering a blessing in disguise? How can this be? Here's one reason. Persecution has a purifying effect on God's people. It purifies our ranks and it purifies our hearts. See, once you walk with Jesus to the point of suffering, there are certain sins, certain temptations that are no longer a pull on you. I mean, you've moved out of their reach. You've gone too far. You've invested too much. You're in too deep. Persecution marks a defining line, a point of no return in a person's life. In the prelude to the Civil War, there were families in the, quote, border states, Virginia and Kentucky, that thought they could preserve their neutrality. They didn't want to fight for either side, north or south. But when the fighting began, suddenly these folks realized they had to choose. You see, it's easy to straddle a fence until that fence becomes part of a war zone. When the lead starts flying, you got to get off the fence. you got to decide where you belong. And this is what happens when a Christian gets persecuted. When persecution breaks out, fence setters come down on one side or the other. Either they follow Jesus with all their heart, come what may, or they tuck tail and deny Him. See, in a war zone, people no longer play at religion. Faith is now serious, deadly business. And a purity results. For a suffering church, there's no more gray. It's black or white. No more lukewarm. It's hot or cold. Persecution ups the ante. It crystallizes our commitment. It intensifies our devotion. It forces us to take a stand. As Peter puts it, He who has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin. Here's what persecution does. It separates the pretenders from the contenders. If we approach a fiery trial with the right attitude, it purifies our motives. And oh, it streamlines our priorities. And it inflames our passion for Jesus. Persecution raises the stakes and elevates our commitment and eliminates our compromises. For a serious believer who truly wants to be all he or she can be for Jesus' sake, persecution can actually become a blessing in disguise. Notice in verse 2, Peter speaks to the Christian who's being persecuted that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Once you've paid a heavy price for following Jesus, then there's no turning back. I mean, it's like swimming across a large lake. Oh, there's safety on the shore. In fact, you can walk out to the end of the dock and turn back if something goes wrong. Even after you dive in, you're still a lot closer to the dock than you are to the other shore. If there's a problem, it's still easier to turn back than it is to press on. But if you swim far enough, if you keep swimming and dog paddling, there comes a point where logic dictates it's the other shore or bust. Hey, now it's easier to press on than it is to turn back. Retreat is no longer an option. And this is what happens when a believer endures persecution. Or if a new, new Christian runs into resistance, it's so easy for them to just turn back. They can rejoin the pack. They can escape into selfish pleasures. But once you've been persecuted for your faith, once it's cost you something to be a Christian, a price has been paid, an investment's been made, then there's no going back. Your eyes, your heart are fixed on the other shore. Once you've shared in the sufferings of Jesus, the die is cast. You'll drown before you turn back. Your goal is to make it to the other shore. It's now heaven or bust. Several years ago, in communist-controlled Laos in Cambodia, Church members, Christians, they were required to sign a card. According to World Evangelism Fellowship, this is what the card read. I, you insert your name, who live in your town, believe in a foreign religion which the imperialists have used for their own benefit to divide the unified front and to build power for themselves against the local authorities. Now I and my family clearly see the intentions of the enemy and regret the deeds which we have committed. We have clearly seen the goodness of the party and the government. Therefore I and my family voluntarily and unequivocally resign from believing in this foreign religion. Now if you sign that card, if you're a Christian and you sign that card, here's what can happen. Your family can now live in peace and safety. Your kids can go to school without being hassled. Your wife can now venture out into public places without having to look over her shoulder the whole time she's gone. That's if you sign the card. But if you don't sign that card, you and your family can expect harassment and humiliation and persecution, maybe even prison and torture. Now I've got to ask you, would you sign or would you not sign? 
See, there's one surety. Signing that card would mark a point of no return in your life. For once you'd sign that card, your commitment to Jesus would be locked in. Your devotion has now been radicalized. You're now a follower of Jesus no matter what. That's why I say persecution is a blessing in disguise because it purifies our faith. But there's another principle in verse 3. He says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now here's principle two. Persecution sharpens our perspective. When we're being persecuted, suddenly we can see life much clearer. When it costs us something tangible to live for Jesus, suddenly everything about our faith becomes more valuable while the lusts of the flesh now seem cheap. Peter says a sufferer gains a sharper perspective on what really matters in life. He says, now that you know, now that you've seen, don't you realize that you've been wasting your time and your life and your money indulging in fleshly, selfish pleasures? Even today, most folks live for the weekend high. The buzz here, the buzz there. They throw their life away on what's fleeting and superficial. Peter says, why don't you take your one and only life and live it for Jesus? Invest it in eternity. You see, suffering becomes a blessing in disguise when we start seeing things clearly. When we start seeing how we were wasting things on drinking parties and on sinful living. When we can see now in light of eternity, suffering becomes a blessing in disguise. You see, in times of peace and tranquility, we as believers, we can get the false impression that this world is really our friend. We forget what this world did to Jesus. We assume that somehow now it's changed colors. We start to view the world around us as an ally. We start to feel at home. We get comfortable. We snuggle up to the sins of this world. That's when persecution wakes us up. It slaps us upside the head. It opens our eyes. It removes the disguise and it reveals the fangs of this world. This world has always been hostile to God and the things of God. Never forget that it hated and butchered our Lord Jesus. Our only home is heaven. There's no real peace and acceptance in this world for followers of Jesus. At times, we might be tolerated, but we'll never truly be embraced. Note verse 4 mentions the people of this world. Peter calls them Gentiles. Now, now he uses this term not in a racial sense, but in a religious sense. The Gentiles are the unbelievers. They're the pagans. They're the people lost without God in their lives. The Gentiles are your old friends. The good old boys. Your homies. Your party pals. The gang. The crew. The wingman. Those are the Gentiles. But notice what Peter says about them. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. They want to know where you've gone. How come you're not still running with them? 
Notice your former friends, he says, are caught up in a flood of dissipation. The phrase dissipation means out of control. A flood of dissipation. They're, they're living a life that's unfocused. They just drift along like an animal. If it feels good, if it tastes good, if it looks good, that's how they roll. They lack restraint and clear direction and conviction in their life. There's no higher purpose. And this is why they're never going to understand your commitment to Jesus. They march to a different drummer. They hang with another posse. And even though they might respect you, they'll never say so. In fact, it won't take long before you'll start to hear their little put-downs. Oh, he's a bore now. She used to be cool. Oh, he's just a Jesus freak. She's a do-gooder. When my daughter stood up to one of her college roommates and said she wouldn't approve of the girl's boyfriend spending the night in their apartment, the girl scolded Natalie. She says, you just need to grow up. When the same girl decided to move to another apartment because Natalie refused to back down, she made sure Natalie heard her parting shot. I want a room with some cool kids. Well, when I heard about all this, I, I wanted to make sure that my daughter understood that's what was said on earth. But that's not what was said in heaven. That her Lord had a whole different take on the situation. And Jesus wanted Natalie to know that he was proud of the stand she had taken. In the halls of heaven, she was one of the cool kids. Here's what you need to remember when you're laughed at for Jesus' sake. Jesus gets the last laugh. In the end, the joke is on the mockers. Notice what Peter says in verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Hey, remember whose definition of cool ultimately prevails. There are many people that this world calls cool. They're going to end up in hell. And trust me, it's nothing cool about hanging out in hell. Verse 6 goes on to explain the criteria by which all men are judged. He says, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. He's thinking about the people in the Old Testament. The gospel was preached to them as well. Now if not in detail, at least it was conveyed to them in seed form. In other words, the name Jesus may not have been mentioned, but God had always promised a deliverer for his people. In verse 6, Peter says that the terms of salvation for all men are identical. He says that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. In other words, the spirit of folks who, who once lived, the people alive today, he calls them men in the flesh, they're all judged by the same criteria. Faith in Jesus. People who are dead and gone. People who lived in Peter's day. People who live today are all judged by the same standard. Did they trust in Jesus? Did they put their faith in Jesus Christ? You see, persecution can be a blessing in disguise. It has a purifying effect on our lives. It sharpens our perspective. And here's principle number three. Persecution makes the rapture of the church a more present and real and longed-for reality. Now, notice what Peter says in verse 7. But the end of all things 
is at hand. He's starting to think about the end of all things. Not what he's going through at the moment. He's starting to think about Jesus coming back. He's starting to think, starting to think about heaven with Jesus. When your relationship with this world grows sour, and you realize this world is no longer a friendly place, boy, it makes going home a far more pleasant prospect. Let's say you vacation in the Bahamas. I know most of you probably vacation in the Bahamas. And you're down in the Bahamas and you're having fun. You're snorkeling and sunbathing and swimming and doing a little windsurfing. It's just a blast. And then one day you hear that a hurricane is brewing way out there somewhere out in the Caribbean. Well, that's a long way off, man. I hear the weather report. I, I know the possibilities, but man, I'm having way too much fun now to want to go home. That is until the wind picks up and the drizzle starts and the sea starts beating against the shore and the waves crash. You see, once you start to feel the storm, your attitude about the Bahamas quickly changes, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you can't wait to board an airplane and get back to the mainland. And this is why persecution is a blessing in disguise. Because it wakes us up to the storms that are ahead. Did you know this world has a court date? This world is going to be judged by God. And when we're persecuted, we start to feel the conflict. Earth is no longer as fun. Our flirtation with it begins to end and we long for Jesus to take us home. You see, persecution purifies. It sharpens our perspective. It makes the rapture seem a more present reality. And then there's a principle number four. Persecution intensifies our prayer life. Notice Peter adds in verse 7, Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Oh my, as long as the sun's shining in the Bahamas, who cares about what's happening back home? You haven't even thought about a return flight. But when that hurricane starts barreling down on your spot in the ocean, you're on the phone, if not daily, hourly. You're calling the local airport, the airline back in the States. You're making sure your flight is on time and that there's seats available and that you're going to have no problem boarding that plane. You see, suddenly the need for communication becomes very, very strategic. And this is what happens to a persecuted believer's prayer life. As the world gets more hostile, staying in touch with heaven and your Savior becomes more and more vital. In peaceful times, we tend to think prayer is an option. But when we're persecuted, we know prayer is an imperative. And the intensity you pick up in your prayer also happens toward other people. Here's principle number five. Persecution causes us to pull together with other believers in more meaningful relationships. When you are hated and rejected by this world, you need to bond together with other believers in Jesus. When you're belittled for Jesus' sake, suddenly it's easier for you to spot your true friends. And they're not the fraternity brothers or the teammates or the co-workers. They're fellow believers. 
They're brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, persecution is a blessing in disguise when it causes us to strengthen our ties with the family of God. If you're a freshman who's headed off to college this fall, here is Survival 101. The moment you arrive on campus, you need to find some fellow believers in Jesus. You need to lock hearts. You need to create some meaningful relationships. For if not immediately, then very soon, you're going to need a Christian friend. It's going to be up to you to take a stand for Jesus. But standing is always easier if there's a few brothers who have your back. You're going to run into a hostile professor who'll try to shatter your faith. You're going to be tempted. And when you say no, you're going to be shunned. If you're committed to following Jesus, you're going to be left hanging. That's when you need to look to the cross. Jesus was left hanging. The difference is that Jesus hung alone. He's made a way for us to hang together. The church is never tighter. Believers are never more united. Our love for one another is never stronger than when we suffer together for Jesus' sake. And that's what makes persecution a blessing in disguise. Persecuted believers, you see, they don't have time to squabble over the fine print of their theology. That's really interesting to me that Christianity's great church councils where the details of our faith were hammered out didn't really occur until 300 years after our founding. And why is that? It's because the church spent its first three centuries under persecution, just fighting to survive. I mean, Christians lack the time and energy to argue doctrine when they're fighting to, to even be alive and to survive. When you're at war with the culture and the world around you, the priority of the church is to love each other. And this is why Peter says in verse 8, Above all, above all things, have fervent love for one another. In a suffering church, people don't hold on to petty differences. They don't squabble over non-essential issues. They don't hold grudges and get bitter. They love each other sincerely and eagerly and sacrificially. And know what Peter says about love. He quotes Proverbs 10 verse 12. He says, For love will cover a multitude of sins. Understand, in serving God, love makes up for all your deficiencies. You don't have to be talented. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be knowledgeable. You don't have to have a lot of experience. If you love, love covers all of our deficiencies. In high school, we had a kid on our baseball team who could hit. This kid could hit. I mean, for average, with power, wow, could he hit. Now, he couldn't catch a fly ball if he had a 10-foot net. And he couldn't run and chew gum at the same time. But somehow, this kid could hit. In fact, every time a ball came his way, we'd all cringe. But he made up for it when he came to bat. In those days, there was no designated hitter. But when our coach made up the lineup, the kid was always in it. Why? Because he could hit. My coach believed in the verse, hitting covers a multitude of errors. <laughs> and I'll let you in on a little secret. 
God feels the same way. If you want to be in God's lineup every day, year after year, if you want to play on God's team, learn to love like Jesus loves. It doesn't matter if you're skilled or if you're error prone. If you love, you can play for God. The Holy Spirit packs his lineup with heavy hitting lovers. Love will cover a multitude of sins. In all times, the church needs to major on love. And then Peter continues this priority of people. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You see, hospitality is love's first impression. The best way to demonstrate an open heart is by opening a door. Even opening your home. See, Peter writes to persecuted believers turned out by the world. He wants them to know that they can turn in to the church. Persecuted people discover the hard way that this world is not their home. Heaven is home. But between now and heaven, we need a home away from home. And this is the role of the church. And hospitality is a vital gift for a suffering church. Hey, why don't, why don't we go out of our way to provide each other a place of safety, a place that we can call home. And then verse 10 takes it a step further. He says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know, God gives to each believer a spiritual gift, and we need to use our gifts. Understand, when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, here's the rule. Use it or lose it. And remember the gift he's just mentioned. The gift of hospitality. Oh, everybody wants the gifts of healing and the gifts of miracles or the gifts of tongues. Things that are exciting. But oh my, we neglect the gift of hospitality. This though could be the most important gift for a hurting church. To have people in the church supernaturally equipped to help people feel at home and loved and wanted. What a blessing. Hospitality is a wonderful, beautiful gift. But it's not the only spiritual gift. He goes on in verse 11 and says, For if anyone speaks, let him speak as with the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability with which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter lists two more gifts here. Speaking God's oracles and ministry. God provides people to the church with the abilities of communication and organization. These are also important gifts for persecuted church. Think about it. When you suffer behind enemy lines, you really want to hear from headquarters, don't you? That's why we need the speaking, uh, the speaking of God's oracles. And of course, after you've been scattered by persecution, you need to get reorganized. That's why we need the gifts of ministry. If you have these gifts, you should use them. When persecution raises its ugly head, it's crucial that Christians come together in encouraging ways and use their gifts to edify one another. Well, if Peter were here today, this is what he'd tell us. Though nobody wants it, 
Nor would anybody be at, want to or ask to be burned at the stake like John Huss. Nevertheless, some of us will suffer. More than likely, we'll be roasted with words. And yet, a little persecution can be good for our faith. And here's why. It has a purifying effect. And it sharpens our perspective. And it increases our longing for Jesus and our hope for heaven. And it deepens our prayer life. And it causes us to pull together and share our gifts with one another. None of us wants to suffer. But we all need to be armed with the mind of Jesus so that when suffering does strike, we can approach it in a way that glorifies God. Let's be sure that our suffering is approached with the right attitude. And if we are, then it'll turn out to be a blessing in disguise.